Lord, thank you that you've created us for more than what we experience now. You've created us even at the, the highest point of our joy and the highest point of our victory and celebration that you're bringing in a kingdom, Lord, that's going to surpass our expectations, that's going to surpass what we could think or believe or imagine or do. God, I ask that we would walk in the power that we were created in. Lord, as we transition into a time of hearing your word, Give us receptive hearts, Lord. Let me communicate clearly because we know it's by your mercy. It's not by human strength or understanding, but by your mercy that you deliver us. We're asking for another step in deliverance this morning, Lord. Let our ears be attentive to what you have to speak to us, God. We thank you that Jesus has made a way for us to communicate with you, for us to know you, for us to walk in relationship with you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been, uh, the last few weeks, going through a series on prayer and the importance and uh, the, the place that prayer plays in our lives as believers. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. We talked about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And then last week, we talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, praying through a tough situation where he was dealing with suffering. And all we've been wanting to do with this series is just fuel your desire to pray. That's one of the key benefits that we have as children of God who have, have a relationship with God through Christ is that we can communicate with him, that we can pray to him. And so my hope today is that this message is just kind of a, another log on that fire that's going to want you to pray more. What I'm talking about today as it relates to prayer Reminds me of a movie that I saw recently. I don't watch a ton of movies. My wife can attest to that. But this movie really stuck with me. Uh, the movie is, is Inside Out. It's an entertaining, fun Disney Pixar movie. And the characters in that movie, I think they're on the screen here. Oh, they're coming. The characters in that movie, they represent these girls' emotions. And so the movie, because it's Pixar and it's animated, right, it's taking place in this girl's head. And each one of the characters during the movie will kind of take control and steer and drive. And so if, for example, the girl is in a situation where she wants to respond with joy, then joy takes control and is kind of driving her emotions and her actions. But one of the plots in that movie is that the character there, uh, sadness, sadness is there, the blue kind of blob wearing the turtleneck. They never let sadness take control. And so throughout the movie, when, when the girl runs into problems, characters like joy or anger or fear will try to trade control of the girl's head, but they don't really see a role for sadness. They never let her take control. And on the surface, to me, that actually sounds kind of cool. Like, I would love to live a life without sadness. I think that would be fun, right? You're just, you know, joy, maybe anger every now and then, a little bit of fear, but you never really feel sorrow or sadness. But what happens in the movie is that the girl actually runs into some significant issues because there are things happening in her life and there are things happening around her that require her to respond with sadness and with sorrow, and she can't. And I think that, you know, I don't know if Pixar was trying to come up with a spiritual reality in that movie, but I think they did. I think it parallels a biblical truth that in our prayer lives, if we don't recognize and process and lament our sorrows, we can hinder our walk with God. Uh, last week, Neil talked about suffering, right, and how suffering plays a role in our prayer lives and how when Jesus was going to encounter a situation that was hard, he was kind of in a place of suffering. I think sorrow is a little bit different because sorrow is a little bit more hard to nail down. Uh, it could be because of a situation that's happened, but it could also just be sorrow about the state of the world. Um, 
You know, when I look at what happened in Orlando last week, or two weeks ago, I guess it is now, and even what's been happening in our own city and in our nation over the last few years, people just dying for seemingly senseless reasons, or earthquakes, tornadoes, famines, refugee crises, I, it just, it evokes in me a lot of sorrow. Um, and I really don't know what to do with that. In a sense, I want to see justice in the world. I want to see God's kingdom come. And I realize I just used a loaded term, justice. It's one that gets thrown out a lot. So let me define it here up front because I'm going to use it throughout the message. What I mean when I say justice is that I want to see people restored and reconciled to who God created them to be. I want to see the fullness of God's kingdom brought in. And so in the pursuit of wanting to see justice, sorrow kind of feels like this unnecessary speed bump in the road. It's like, why do I have to feel sorrow? Like, why can't we just get to, like, fixing issues and fixing problems? And it makes me question, how do I deal with that sorrow, especially in my prayer life? Should I just be like the characters at Inside Out and kind of just, like, you know, move around it and not really keep sorrow in there, just pray prayers of joy or maybe prayers that are dealing with my fear but never process sorrow? Should I just think of solutions and maybe tell God what I think he wants to hear so I don't have to worry about sorrow and God can just fix everything for me? Um, And I realize that the culture that we're living in doesn't make that struggle any easier. If you look at something like the Billboard Top 10 songs that are out right now, the things that we hear constantly on the radio, the things that we see when we're watching TV, it's all about having fun and being in love and partying and everybody can dance and it's, you know, it's all, it's all good, right? It's all fun. But if I look at the world and I just take a glance at what's going on even outside in our own city, I have to realize that there's sorrow and that there's sadness and that everybody's not having fun and everybody can't dance. Like, Everybody in, in, on the radio can. But I think there's a place where we, as children of God, and we as believers, can prophetically and counterculturally start by crying out to God because the world today is far from what he intended it to be. And one of the ways we can do that, and one of the pathways that can lead us to this justice that we want to see God bring about in the world is by being sorrowful. And I think in a strange way, Sorrow actually prepares the way for the justice that we want to see in the world. One obvious example of that is Jesus himself. The kingdom was inaugurated through his life and death, and Jesus himself in Isaiah 53 was described as a man of sorrows who was familiar with grief. Now, Jesus is a very obvious example, right? And we've actually been looking at Jesus' prayer life over the last few weeks, but the character in the Bible I want to look at today is a little less familiar. It's one I had to do a fair amount of research on. Today we're going to look at a prophet, and this prophet's name was Habakkuk. I'll let some of you debate me after the service whether it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk, but we're going to roll with Habakkuk. So the prophet we're going to be looking at today is Habakkuk, and uh, you know we're not looking at Jesus. I want to just set the background a little bit. Kind of in the, in the overall story of Scripture, Habakkuk is in the Old Testament where God was dealing with a group of people called the nation of Israel. These were a a group of people that God called out specifically to be in relationship with him. And God gave them a covenant with laws, with ways to follow and ways to live. And Israel would ultimately fall short of that, right? Which is why we would need Jesus to come on the scene in the Gospels and in the New Testament to restore us to our relationship with God and to inaugurate this kingdom that God was bringing into the world where we would see more justice and we would see more of the world set in place the way God intended it to be. But Jesus isn't on the scene yet. And so when we're looking in the Old Testament, another helpful thing to remember is they didn't have Bibles like we do now. So 
If they wanted to learn about God, they couldn't just, you know, flip open and read Galatians or, or something like that. They actually had a lot harder time figuring out what God would want or desire from them. And so God would communicate them with them differently than he communicates with us today. One of the ways that he communicated with them at that time were through prophets. And so prophets were people you may have heard of like Daniel, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Elijah, when we studied about a month or so ago. Prophets would hear directly from God, and then they would communicate God's word directly to his people. So it's one of the ways God communicated, specifically in the Old Covenant. Now, this prophet Habakkuk is one of the lesser known. It's called a minor prophet. And we don't know a ton about him, but just from a factual standpoint, we do know that this book was written around 609 B.C., and it was shortly after the death of a man named King Josiah. And the death of King Josiah is important because King Josiah, in the story of the nation of Israel, actually did a decent job of putting in some reforms and some decrees and some laws that had the people of God living a little bit better than they were. And things were beginning to turn around, and people were living a little more righteously. But after the death of King Josiah, things began to fall apart, and things began to return to a place, a place of injustice, a place where people were not living righteously. And that's where we pick up in the book of Habakkuk. So the passage we're going to be looking at today is Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. So the verses will be on the screen here, and I'm going to read them to you. This is coming, I believe, from the NIV. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. Habakkuk's complaint. How long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not say it. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So what we see Habakkuk doing in those four verses, he's, he's communicating, he's praying to God just like we would. But the type of prayer he's praying is what you commonly hear called lament. Lament is just an expression of sorrow or grief over the state of things. And lament is not something I immediately think of when I think about prayer. I don't immediately think of like, oh yeah, let's lament. Let's like be sad and express our sorrow. But I think lament in its own way can prepare the way for the justice that we want to see in the world. First off, because lament recognizes that even if we have faith in God and we desire and want to see his kingdom come and we have a new heart and a new spirit, we experience joy and peace through our relationship with Christ, even with that, we're not numb to the fact that the world is far from what he is going to bring in his new kingdom. And so lament shows that we're not numb to injustice, we're not numb to pain, sorrow, loneliness, all of the things that we still experience, even as children of God, because his kingdom hasn't fully come yet. Lament also emphasizes the fact that we're made in God's image. And so when things happen that grieve God's heart, it also grieves us because he created us and we're more than just robots who are kind of experiencing this world. We're actually people who feel the things that God feels. When things grieve his heart, they grieve us as well. And we can lament that. Habakkuk's name also gives us a clue into the importance of lament. The name Habakkuk in Hebrew means one who clings to, or one who embraces. 
And so one of our core values at this church is loving God. One of the ways we can love God, and one of the ways we can cling to God and embrace him is by expressing lament and sorrow to him. When I think about it, you know, you don't, you don't really share your deep sorrows or those deep feelings of, of lament with people that you don't know or people that you don't trust. If you're just meeting somebody for the first time, right, you're kind of making small talk. How's your mom? You know, how's the weather, right? You're just talking about these kind of surface-level things. And that's how my prayer life kind of feels a lot of times. I'm just, I'm just talking about surface-level things with God. I'm telling him the things that I, ex- I think he wants to hear. Lament lets you, allows us to cling to God, and it takes it a level deeper where we get into telling God the things that are really deeply troubling us. And because we're made in his image, they're probably also troubling him. And so we cling to him, we embrace him by expressing our sorrows in prayer. Um, one of the things I like about that sorrow that we feel is we can take it and we can just express it to God and lament. And how we lament is expressing sorrow without necessarily having to have a conclusion or a solution or an answer. That's what we see even in Habakkuk's first four verses here. He's not expressing sorrow for the sake of then giving his answer to God about how it can be fixed. He's just giving God and trusting God with his sorrow. So how we lament is we express sorrow to God without necessarily having to land at a conclusion or an answer. Sung Chang Ra, who literally wrote the book on lament, he wrote a really great book called Prophetic Lament. I'm going to quote him a few times today. He sums it up well. He says, Lament recognizes struggles and suffering, that the world is not as it ought to be. Lament challenges the status quo and cries out for justice. Habakkuk here, I think, is giving us a good example of how lament can prepare the way for justice. His lament kind of starts on this individual level, then it moves out to what he sees in his his community, and it ultimately finds its rest in God's goodness and God's character. So if we start from the beginning, in those first few verses, Habakkuk is expressing his individual lament to God, what he feels like he's missing on an individual relationship level with God. You know, last week, Neil was talking about Jesus being in a state of distress about something that was going to happen to him and about Jesus about to be, uh, cru- Jesus was about to be crucified. Here, Habakkuk is almost dealing more with, with, with like a spiritual dryness. He's saying, God, I don't feel heard by you. I don't feel like you're hearing my cries for violence. I don't feel like you're answering when I call on you. And we don't have an answer as to why God is doing that. Sometimes scripture does give us an answer for why God doesn't hear our prayers. First uh, Peter 3, 7, when husbands are oppressive or harsh with their wives, it says their prayers are hindered. James 1, 6 and 7 says that when we don't pray in faith, we shouldn't expect an answer from God. And then the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58 told the people that because of their oppression of the poor, God wasn't hearing their prayers. But we don't have that here. There's no neat explanation as to why Habakkuk doesn't feel heard by God, other than the consequence of sin that we all deal with. Separation from our creator, just in our natural state. He's lamenting the fact that we're in this state where we don't have the intimacy, we don't have the answers from God that we fully desire. And Habakkuk is honest with God about the fact that he's not feeling heard. He's not giving the surface level prayer about what he thinks God wants to hear, what he's heard other people pray. He's getting right to the point about, God, I don't feel like I'm being heard. I don't feel like you're hearing my cries for justice. How how long must I cry out to you and you don't answer? Now, we don't have the answer here, but in chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk that revelation or the answer that you want has an appointed time and that you should wait for it patiently, 
even though it might linger. So for us, an act of faith is to wait on God, and to wait on God even in sorrow, as we desire to see justice, and as we desire to see God's kingdom fully manifest itself in our city. That type of waiting can allow us to identify with those, especially in our city, who might not have it as well as us, who feel the brunt and the pain of not quite seeing God's kingdom fully realized, the poor, the marginalized, refugees, as we were talking about earlier with testimonies. So lament, in our pursuit of justice, allows us not to just run in and try to fix a problem, but to obey Romans 12 and to start by weeping with those who weep and realizing that collectively, whether we're poor, whether we're rich, whether we're refugees or not, we all have a desire to experience more of God than we currently have right now. After looking at his individual situation, Habakkuk then expands it out to what he sees in his community because the effects of sin aren't just individual, they also affect and impact communities around us. So Habakkuk here is lamenting violence, injustice, wrongdoing, strife, conflict, the wicked taking advantage and hemming in the righteous. And this was actually taking place before the the Lord would allow Judah, which is where Habakkuk was living, to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Now what Habakkuk's not doing here, even though he's in a state of spiritual and moral decline and his nation is in that state, He doesn't just start by thinking about an answer or thinking about a solution that's going to fix the problem and just kind of praying it in. So he's not asking for another king. I think maybe through the Old Testament, if you read, people ask for kings and it doesn't work out that well. So maybe Habakkuk could learn for that, right? He's not asking for military strength, chariots, or supplies. He's starting by just realizing that we have a deep-seated problem here in our nation. And it's not going to be fixed by me just having an answered prayer for a king or for a chariot or for military power and strength. He realizes the depth and the depravity of his land, and he's allowing his heart to be filled with sorrow before he moves towards trying to figure out the solution to the problem. Sung Chan Ra, again, I think uh, he sums this up well and gives this metaphor that sometimes we think about sin and we think about injustice as if it's a sickness in our world and in our land. So if it's a sickness, what that means is that it has a, a solution or an elixir, right? So the solution to the sickness could be, uh, you know, a king or a law or a reform or even an act of service or even something that we can do. But really, Sung Chan Ra takes it further and says that injustice and sin in the world is due to spiritual death that can only be awakened in Christ. So prayer that engages issues of injustice can't just be solution-based. We have to see and recognize and lament death because the result of sin is death. And we have to cry out to God who can bring life and justice. If we want to see resurrection life in our city and in our nation and in our world, we also have to realize and recognize the death around us. This is paralleling, I think, many, many places in the Bible where God describes people or nation state that are apart from him. In Ephesians 2.5, when it talks about us uh, being raised to life in Christ, it starts with saying that we were dead in our sins. We weren't just sick, we were dead. Revelation 3.1, when God is talking to the church at Sardis, he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And then the prodigal son, when he was apart from his father and he comes home and he's restored the relationship with his father, the father embraces him and he celebrates and he says, my son who was once dead, is now alive. 
So when we don't lament and we just think about solutions, we're underestimating the death and the depravity that surround us. And many people whom God used to be a part of the solution and to bring justice were people who lamented. Psalm 119, 136. The psalmist, because the law isn't obeyed, is crying streams of tears. Nehemiah, a narrative that a lot of us are familiar with. Nehemiah is known in the Old Testament for rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Before he starts his rebuilding campaign, he prays and fasts and weeps over the current state of things, which had been that way for a while. This wasn't new news to Nehemiah, but he allows his heart to be filled with sorrow. Jesus, even, as he's coming into Jerusalem, weeps about people not knowing the peace that he can bring and restore to the city. And then Paul, probably the most famous church planter of all time, Romans 9, says his heart is filled with unceasing sorrow and anguish over people not accepting the message of Christ. So to address injustice and to address spiritual death in the world, God calls us to lament before he calls us to act so that when we act, we can act in empathy and we can act with the perseverance that raises the dead. Habakkuk's lament starts individual, it moves out to the corporate level, and then, as I said, it rests and finds its, its rest on God's character. Lament, even though it's an expression of sorrow and even an expression of dissatisfaction, still recognizes that God is in control. Look at what Habakkuk says in the verses. He says, God, why do you make me look at injustice? God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So even in his sorrow and even his expression of dissatisfaction, Habakkuk is realizing in his own funny way that God can redeem the situation because it's God who's making him look at injustice. It's God who's tolerating wrongdoing. And so that puts us at a pretty big point of tension, right? How can we trust a God who calls us to lament, who calls us to feel sorrowful, but yet has the power to do away with wrongdoing and has the power to not make us look at injustice? I think that's a really deep question, right? The answer to that is multi-layered, multifaceted, depending on how you might approach it. But foundationally, the foundation of that answer is very simple. The foundation of that answer is the character of Jesus and the fact that God's ultimate plan to bring about justice and his kingdom in the world started with a man of sorrows. Jesus himself, Hebrews 4.15, talks about how he can empathize with our weakness, how he was tempted in every way that we are. And even if we look at our lives, we have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus himself was a man who experienced hunger. Jesus himself was a man who experienced homelessness. Jesus himself was a man who experienced a broken family without an earthly father present. Jesus himself was a man who experienced the injustice of the government that would ultimately kill him. And so when we're trusting God with our sorrows, when we're lamenting to him, we're not putting those things in the hand of a God who's kind of holding the world and just looking at it like it's a big fishbowl, like, I wonder what's going on there. That must be interesting. We're trusting a God who came here and who suffered just like we did. And so we have to go back to the same place that we looked at last week, that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows, and Jesus himself experienced much of the injustice that we want to see done away with in our world. So does that mean that when we pray to God that we experience instant happiness or that when we walk with Jesus, we experience instant happiness and joy? Not really. 
It doesn't mean that we have simple three-step solutions for everything and that because we believe in Jesus that we can fix all the world's problems instantly just by, you know, going to a few verses in Scripture and just having it and we can just go and move on. It actually means that the world's problems are complex. It actually means that Jesus himself suffered and experienced injustice even though he was all-powerful. And so I think what this means is that we cannot just have answers to our problems, but we can have the very character that made Jesus distinct when he was in this world. The fact that in the face of gross injustice, in the face of a world that's filled with so much oppression, we have the power to love our enemies as Jesus commanded us. Or in a world that has so many problems that are so multi-layered and multifaceted, we have the perseverance to continue to pursue and continue to speak up and continue to fight for justice, no matter how much death we see in the world, because we know that we serve and worship a God who defeated death. So how do we respond to Jesus' character? How do we respond to this man of sorrows? I think we have to go back to the movie Inside Out. We can't avoid sorrow and sadness in the world, and especially in our prayer life. In fact, we can take that sorrow and that sadness, and we can infuse it into our prayer through lament. We can pray communally. We can pray individually over the the, the, the pain that we feel about being separate from God's full character and his full will being manifest in our world. And we can l- allow those laments to bring us closer with God and to add a level of depth to our prayer life, to allow us to embrace God, just like Habakkuk's name signifies. And we can allow our laments to prepare the way for justice. So I knew this message would be relatively short. I wanted to give us a little more time for response. I'm going to ask the band to come back up And I want us to end this message by taking some time and lamenting together. It's tempting, and I feel this certainly, you know, to see the injustice and the pain and the sorrow in the world. And I want to just turn a blind eye and and focus on things that make me happy. But God commands his people, and God commanded people like the prophet Jeremiah to take up a lament, to, to proactively engage the sorrow and the sadness of the world, and to cry out to him for justice. Habakkuk 3, it's a really short book. I'd encourage you to read it if you get some time. Habakkuk 3 is the end of Habakkuk's interaction with God. And he makes a statement that I want us to use in a responsive reading. During this time, I'm going to publicly just read off some sin, some injustice, some strife that's plaguing our world and that's plaguing our community. And I'd ask you to respond by reading the verse that's on the screen. We're going to do that in a minute. As we do this, I'm going to ask God for me and I'm going to ask God for us for him to take us just one step deeper into how much his heart is breaking over injustice and over sin and over strife in the world. I would ask him, and I'm going to ask him to give me and to give us that same spirit that enabled Jesus, not to just fix problems, but to sit with people in their pain and to sit with us in our pain and to feel the Father's heart for unbrokenness, for brokenness and for death that plagues the world, that one day, He'll fully restore. But until then, we're not okay with the status quo. And so we lament. We cry out to God to bring his kingdom fully and to bring justice fully. And we empathize with our neighbors and with our friends who are maybe experiencing that more than we are. Because that's the very character of Jesus. Although he didn't experience the sting of sin, he emptied himself and became a servant and lived on earth with us. So the verse 
um, we're going to use in this responsive reading comes from Habakkuk 3, and I'm paraphrasing verses 17 through 19. Verses 17 through 19 have this poetic language that talk about uh, the fig tree. It hasn't budded yet. There are no grapes on the vines yet. The world still has so much more progress to make. And we're honest about that. We look at that and we express that honestly to God. Lord, we don't have fully what we want yet. But yet, we can rejoice and we can be joyful in God our Savior. Because he can bring life where we have lamented death. And lament can prepare the way for justice. So I'm going to ask us to stand. Like I said, I'm going to read off an injustice or something that just pricks my heart when I hear about the state of things in the world. And I'll ask you to respond by reading the verse on the screen. I'm going to end my portion by saying, let's take up a lament. That's what God commanded the prophet Jeremiah to do, to take up sorrow and to take up sadness as a sign that God was going to bring so much more than what we have today and that we can even weep and be sorrowful over the fact that we're far from what he intended. So, Violence continues in our city. 18-year-old high school student, Raekwon Brown, was shot and killed in broad daylight outside of Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester earlier this month. Let's take up a lament. Addiction, prescription drug abuse, heroin, marijuana, cocaine, alcoholism continues to plague our cities, our friends, and our family. Let's take up a lament. Boston continues to be one of the most segregated cities in the U.S., Racism, prejudice, racial apathy, racial ignorance continue to plague our cities, our nations, and our churches. Let's take up a lament. Depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, personality disorders, other mental conditions continue to plague our cities, our friends, and our families, many of whom don't have access to affordable or appropriate health care. Let's take up a lament. Earlier this month, a student at Brighton High was caught with a loaded gun. Brighton High and Thomas Edison, which is the building we're in now, are both not meeting academic progress goals for their students, the majority of whom are low income. Let's take up a lament. Forty-two people were killed in a recent violent attack in Istanbul. Nations like Nigeria... Paris, Pakistan, Iraq, and the U.S. have lost life due to random acts of violence. Let's take up a lament.
500-plus migrants and refugees drowned in the Mediterranean Sea this April. Refugees and migrants continue to struggle to find resettlement. Let's take up a lament. Roughly 1.2 million babies will be aborted this year. Let's take up a lament. Roughly 27 million people today are being traded in slavery. Let's take up a lament. billion people today are unreached or unengaged with the gospel. Let's take up a lament. I'm going to pray to transition us into our time of response. Lord, there is wrongdoing, there's strife, there's injustice, there's sorrow, and there's sadness in our land. God, we recognize it. We see it, and it grieves us. It grieves our hearts. It's tempting for us to not want to look at it or engage it, Lord, but we know our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community, our city, our nation, our world is far from where you intended. How long, Lord, will you hide hide your face from us, Lord? How long will you withhold justice? How long will you allow the suffering to continue? God, sometimes we feel like our prayers aren't answered. Sometimes we feel like we don't have the relationship with you that we desire or that we are created for. Come quickly, Lord. Restore, restore the fig tree, Lord. Put grapes on the vines. Lord, we know that our sorrow is safe with you. We know that we're created in your image and that what grieves you is also grieving us. Help us, Lord. Heal our land. Send justice. Send Jesus. Send Jesus quickly. It's in his name we pray.